Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. January 8. On this date in literary history in the year 1976, Ragtime wins the National Book Critics Circle Award. Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow is awarded the National Book Critics Circle Award. The book deals with race relations in the 1920s, mixing fictional characters with real figures from the era. The book was made into a 1981 movie and a musical in 1997. The book established Doctorow as a major contemporary novelist. Doctorow was born in New York in 1931 and raised in the Bronx. An avid reader, he decided at age nine to become a writer. He graduated from Kenyon College, then studied at Columbia. He worked as a reservations clerk at LaGuardia Airport, then became a book editor, rising to editor-in-chief of the Dial Press by age 33. Meanwhile, he was writing novels on the side. He published his first Welcome to Hard Times in 1960. The book, about a frontier town, received little notice, as did his next book, Big as Life, in 1966. In 1969, he quit his job, moved to California with his wife and three kids, and began writing full-time. His 1971 novel, The Book of Daniel, about the 1953 execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for espionage, was more successful, and the next, Ragtime, became a bestseller. Dr. Rowe continued writing and began teaching creative writing at Sarah Lawrence in New York and NYU. He published several novels in the 1980s and 90s, including a coming-of-age gangster story, Billy Bathgate, in 1989, and a film in 1991, and The Waterworks in 1994, about a 19th-century New York. He died in 2015. January 9. On this date in 21st century history, in the year 2001, Apple launches iTunes, a media player that revolutionized the way people consumed digital media. Bill Kincaid and Jeff Robin, two former Apple employees, developed an MP3 player called Sound Jam MP in the late 1990s. In 2000, Apple rehired them and their partner, Dave Heller, to work on a similar player that would come standard with Apple computers. The first version of iTunes debuted early the next year on the cusp of a new era in digital entertainment. Along with the iPod, the MP3 player Apple released later in 2001, iTunes revolutionized the music industry, providing consumers with a simple, portable way of listening to a large library of music. Sleek and focused on a simplified user experience, iTunes made it easy for users to burn CDs and to manage digital music files. Apple founder Steve Jobs is credited with iTunes' success as a music marketplace. Seeing that music was easier to access than ever, but that record labels were losing money due to internet piracy, 
Jobs made a deal with the five major record labels to sell their content via iTunes. The fact that it was above board and profitable for the music industry, combined with the cultural cash of its companion product, the iPod, made iTunes an unqualified success. The iTunes store soon became one of the Internet's premier marketplaces, not only for music, but also for music videos, TV shows, movies, apps, and podcasts. Artists recorded exclusive singles and released albums early on iTunes, and the iTunes Music Festival was a popular annual attraction from 2007 until 2016. As the iPhone, released in 2007, overtook the iPod as Apple's marquee product, the iTunes store remained prominent. But subscription-based streaming services like Spotify began to challenge iTunes itself. Responding to this shift, Apple launched Apple Music, which was compatible with, but separate from, iTunes in 2015. On June 3, 2019, Apple announced iTunes would not be included in the latest version of its Mac operating system. Though the age of pay-per-song downloads may have ended, there is no question that iTunes had a major impact on music. The program turned what was more or less a black market into a vital organ of the music industry, and its crisp, user-friendly format changed the way people consume digital audio and video content. January 10. On this date, in art, literature, and film history, in the year 2000, AOL Time Warner was formed. On January 10, 2000, in one of the biggest media mergers in history, America Online, Inc. announces its plans to acquire Time Warner, Inc. for some $182 billion in stock and debt. The result was a $350 billion megacorporation, AOL Time Warner, which held dominant positions in every type of media, including music, publishing, news, entertainment, cable, and the Internet. The AOL Time Warner merger came at the height of the so-called Internet bubble when dot-com businesses were on a meteoric rise and their future seemed limitless. The idea was to combine Time Warner's impressive book, magazine, television, and movie production capabilities with AOL's 30 million internet subscribers to form the ultimate media empire. Under the terms of the merger, which was cleared by the Federal Trade Commission in December 2000 and formally completed in January 2001, AOL shareholders owned 55% of the new company, while Time Warner shareholders owned 45%. AOL's co-founder, chairman, and chief executive officer Steve Case became chairman of the new company, while Time Warner chairman and CEO Gerald Levin was named its CEO. The potential windfall promised by the plan to sell Time Warner content through the AOL network never materialized, and when the internet bubble burst in 2001, the company's losses reached record proportions. Levin, widely blamed by shareholders for allowing Time Warner and its stable, old media assets to be effectively taken over and dragged down by the ailing new media division, resigned in December 2001. He was replaced by Richard Parsons, a decision that later contributed to increasing internal tensions and the departure of Chief Operating Officer Bob Pittman, who had been passed over in favor of Parsons. In 2002, 
as investors pulled out en masse of many internet-related stocks. AOL Time Warner reported a quarterly loss of $54 billion, the largest ever for a U.S. company. Time Warner spun off AOL in 2009. In 2018, AT&T acquired Time Warner. January 11. On this date in exploration history in the year 1935, Amelia Earhart flies from Hawaii to California. In the first flight of its kind, American aviatrix Amelia Earhart departs Wheeler Field in Honolulu, Hawaii, on a solo flight to North America. Hawaiian commercial interests offered a $10,000 reward to whoever accomplished the flight first. The next day, after traveling 2,400 miles in 18 hours, she safely landed at Oakland Airport in Oakland, California. On May 21, 1932, Exactly five years after American aviator Charles Lindbergh became the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean, Earhart became the first woman to repeat the feat when she landed her plane in Londonderry, Ireland. However, unlike Lindbergh, when he made his historic flight, Earhart was already well known to the public before her solo transatlantic flight. In 1928, as a member of a three-member crew, she had become the first woman to cross the Atlantic in an aircraft. Although her only function during the crossing was to keep the plane's log, the event won her national fame, and Americans were enamored with the modest and daring young pilot. For her solo transatlantic crossing in 1932, she was awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross by the U.S. Congress. Two years after her Hawaii to California flight, she attempted with navigator Frederick Noonan to fly around the world, but her plane was lost on July 2, 1937, somewhere between New Guinea and Howland Island in the South Pacific. Radio operators picked up a signal that she was low on fuel, the last trace the world would ever know of Amelia Earhart. January 12. On this date in Women's History, in the year 1932, Hattie Wyatt Carraway becomes the first woman elected to the Senate. Hattie Ophelia Wyatt Carraway, a Democrat from Arkansas, becomes the first woman to be elected to the U.S. Senate. Carraway, born near Bakerville, Tennessee, had been appointed to the U.S. Senate two months earlier to fill the vacancy left by her late husband, Thaddeus Horatio Carraway. With the support of Huey Long, a powerful senator from Louisiana, Carraway was elected to the seat. In 1938, she was re-elected. After failing to win renomination in 1944, she was appointed to the Federal Employees Compensation Commission by President Franklin Roosevelt. Although she was the first freely elected female senator, Carraway was preceded in the Senate by Rebecca Latimer Felton, who was appointed in 1922 to fill a vacancy but never ran for election. Jeanette Rankin, elected to the House of Representatives as a pacifist from Montana in 1917, was the first woman to ever sit in Congress. January 13. On this date in religion history in the year 1128, the Pope recognizes the Knights Templar. Pope Honorius II grants a papal sanction to the military order known as the Knights Templar, declaring it to be an army of God. Led by the Frenchman Hughes de Payens, 
the Knights Templar organization was founded in 1118. Its self-imposed mission was to protect Christian pilgrims on their way to and from the Holy Land during the Crusades, the series of military expeditions aimed at defeating Muslims in Palestine. For a while, the Templars had only nine members, mostly due to their rigid rules. In addition to having noble birth, the knights were required to take strict vows of poverty, obedience, and chastity. In 1127, new promotional efforts convinced many more noblemen to join the order, gradually increasing its size and influence. By the time the Crusades ended unsuccessfully in the early 14th century, the order had grown extremely wealthy, provoking the jealousy of both religious and secular powers. In 1307, King Philip IV of France and Pope Clement V combined to take down the Knights Templar, arresting the Grand Master Jacques de Molay on charges of heresy, sacrilege, and Satanism. Under torture, Molay and other leading Templars confessed and were eventually burned at the stake. Clement dissolved the Templars in 1312. The modern-day Catholic Church has admitted that the persecution of the Knights Templar was unjustified and claimed that Pope Clement was pressured by secular rulers to dissolve the order. Over the centuries, myths and legends about the Templars have grown, including the belief that they may have discovered holy relics at Temple Mount, including the Holy Grail, the Ark of the Covenant, or parts of the cross from Christ's crucifixion. The imagined secrets of the Templars have inspired various books and movies, including the blockbuster novel and film, The Da Vinci Code. January 14. On this date in United States presidential history, in the year 1943, FDR becomes the first president to travel by airplane on U.S. official business. Franklin D. Roosevelt becomes the first president to travel on official business by airplane, crossing the Atlantic by air. Roosevelt flew in a Boeing 314 flying boat dubbed the Dixie Clipper to a World War II strategy meeting with Winston Churchill at Casablanca in North Africa. With German U-boats taking a heavy toll on American marine traffic in the Atlantic, Roosevelt's advisors reluctantly agreed to send him via airplane. Roosevelt, at a frail 60 years old, gamely made the arduous 17,000-mile round trip. The secret and circuitous journey began on January 11, with the plane stopping several times over four days to refuel and for its passengers to rest. Roosevelt and his entourage left Florida, touched down in the Caribbean, continued down the southern coast of South America to Brazil, and then flew across the Atlantic to Gambia. They reached Casablanca on January 14. After a successful meeting with Churchill, as well as some sightseeing and visit to the troops, Roosevelt retraced the route back to the United States, celebrating his 61st birthday somewhere over Haiti. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for January 8 through January 14. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then... 
Thanks for listening.